In 2024, the Triathlon Hour is brought to you by The Feed. Thefeed.com is a website that has all of the world's best training and race day nutritional products in one place. The Feed's goal is to help you experiment with and ultimately find what nutritional products work best for you to get the most out of your performance in training and racing. They have almost 200 brands in stock, so you can buy as much from one brand as you want or as little as one gel from a brand. And I really do think that's the big benefit, is you can try one thing from every brand and that way you'll find exactly what it is that you love and works for you. And having it all at one place at thefeed.com makes it convenient to do so. There's no more having to go to multiple websites and pay for shipping on them all and wait for them to come on different days or drive around to multiple shops. You can just get everything you need at thefeed.com and have it all shipped to your front door together so it arrives at the same time. David Tilbury Davis is one of the biggest names in long course triathlon coaching at the moment. He's the coach of Ash Gentle, Sky Munch, Amelia Watkinson, and Josh Amberger. And he was the coach of Lionel Sanders a couple of times uh, for that matter, most notably throughout the period where Lionel came second at Kona to Patrick Lang. David, it's good to have you on. Jack, it's a pleasure. Uh, good to catch up. I kind of felt like I maybe wasn't famous enough uh, until, I, uh, until I get on your podcast. So... You know, I'm only known for being Lionel's coach uh, or ex-coach for that matter. So, but no, it's all good. It's all good to catch up. Do we start with Lionel or do we start with Ash? Uh, I think we can start with anybody. Um, I've been in the game so long. Maybe we start with, we'll start, let's start with Ash and then we'll, we'll come back to Lionel a little bit later because I think people are interested in that. But you're the coach of Ashley Gentle, who at the moment is probably one of the, you know, four or five best long course female triathletes in the world. Uh, some people would probably say she's the best. How did that all come about? Um, I've always, I've always worked with athletes through sort of referrals and recommendations. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I was, um, I was out in Kona. In fact, it was the year I was working with Lionel and um, my, my wife, who's a physical therapist, was there with me. And Josh um, was actually staying in the apartment above us um, where I was staying with some friends. Um, and, you know, I, I bumped into Josh and and then, you know, Yanina, my wife, said to, to Sarah and jo Crowley and, and Josh, if you you know, if you need any, any physical therapy or treatment before the race, just, you know, just knock on the door and and I can help you out. And so like, I kind of met Josh then. So he kind of knew of me, me then. Um, and then a couple of years later, I was coaching um, Simon Hearn and Lockie Kieran. Simon was, you know, national Australian national middle distance champion. And they live in both of those guys live in, in Brisbane um, and, and Josh knows them. And so when Ashley had made a decision to transition away from ITU, um, obviously her and, and, and Josh were looking around and they were asking folks, you know, who do you think we should have a conversation with? And my name popped up and 
uh, I had a conversation with Ashley about sort of how I do things and how I work and how I communicate. And um, she felt it was a good fit and, and it kind of went from there. And that was, that was, you know, January, a couple of years ago. So. So when you had that conversation with Ashley about how you do things and, and how you communicate and what kind of coach you are, can you take us inside that conversation? Like what did you say to her and, and what was her responses to you? So obviously at that point, Ashley hadn't really raced middle distance. So it was, uh, although she was familiar with it through uh, Josh, it was very much new territory. So her perspective was that she was coming at it as somebody that didn't have much experience in middle distance racing and, and just needed somebody to, to guide her through that um, and give her the tools and the skill set to to excel at it um building on you know all the years and the coaches that she'd worked with uh, in itu so that was her perspective and and my perspective was um first and foremost was you know if you want to kind of have a really good understanding of how i work and what i'm like as a person um feel free to speak to any of my coach uh, coached athletes or athletes that i've coached in the past because they'll all have an opinion i'm you know happy for them to to share with you and i and i just explained that you know i predominantly work remotely um i i don't do a lot of face-to-face work i do some um you know like the ensuing year as an example ashley and i uh went to the wind tunnel in the uk um as part of her sponsorship with with scott uh bikes and so we were uh at the wind tunnel with simon smart at drag two zero and you know there's been other occasions where i've you know flown in to to work with athletes face to face and and it's an interesting one because there are coaches out there at my level that that do a lot of face to face or group training um and when i've actually spoken to all of my athletes uh, around the world and said you know would you prefer me to run a training camp and you all have to be there and and without fail most of them respond no um they would prefer to sort of parachute me in as needed uh simply because you know they have their routines they have their habits they know where their fridge is they know what the aisles are like on the local supermarket they're sleeping on their own bed with their own pillow so they kind of don't actually really see value um in that um I think maybe it's different for coaches working with ITU athletes because ITU athletes have to travel so much that, you know, for some of them, they're potentially not home for nine months of the year. So as a consequence, if they're not home for nine months of the year, it doesn't really matter where they are. So, you know, whether that's Girona or Portugal or California or or wherever or uh, Sedona, you know, this, these are all the kinds of places that people or Samaritz, you know, that, that groups have based themselves at for periods of time. Um, so that, so once I kind of explained all of that to Ashley, um, you know, she, she asked around and I'm not sure whether she did actually end up speaking to some people. Um, but then just, yeah, made a decision. It seemed to be a good fit and we've gone from there. And, and that's been the same with, you know, the same with Sky and the same with Jeannie and Justin Metzler. It's, you know, it's just, um, I kind of explain how I do things and that it's collaborative. It's a partnership. It's not a dictatorship. Um, and I, you know, I have a lot of respect for 
how well these athletes know their bodies. So, you know, I'm not going to sometimes sit here and say, you know, you must do X or you must do Y. I'm always going to listen to their feedback and I'm never going to criticize anybody for, say, calling an audible in a workout and saying, you know what, mm, actually, I'm not going to do that many intervals or I'm not going to push quite that hard because the reality is, is that without fail, every single one of the you know elite athletes that I work with, they don't need me to be like, come on, suck it up, buttercup. You know, you need to gut it out because they're hard enough on themselves psychologically as it is anyway. So if they do make a judgment call, I I respect that judgment call. You know, I, there's never been an instance where I said, oh, that, that was a, that was a cop out. And so what month was it that you started working with Ash? Um, it was the beginning of her first season. So in middle distance, so it would have been January, 2022. Yeah. Yeah. And so then Ash has gone on to have two of oh, the two best years of her career. She was a successful short course triathlete for sure. Like she, she won a, a WTCS race in 2017 and she's been on the podium uh, multiple other times in 2018, 2019, uh, for example. But her, like her success in 2022 and 2023 has been quite out of this world, really. With, uh, you know, she, there's been five PTO races and she's won three of them and come second in the other two, which is a PTO record mm. that is so far ahead of the the next best it's it's not even funny so what is it what is it that you guys have done to sort of turn ash's career around from a point where she was a i don't want to say this disrespectfully because i mean you know how much respect i have for ash gentle but she was sort of becoming a bit of a struggling short course triathlete towards the, the end of 2021 and and to now be probably the the best you know pto distance triathlete in the world if you know she's definitely top three what, what how did you turn that all around um, I'm, I'm not so sure I've got a, a, like a perfect answer of I did X and it turned things around. I, I just think that one of the difficulties with training in individuals in a group environment, you know, the, you know, the reality is, is that the, the, the type of individuals like, like Ashley, um, or Christian, um, or Taylor, you know, or Anna, Anna um, they're all the 1% of the 1% of the 1% physiologically speaking, you know, they're, they're complete outliers. Um, you know, some of them have, you know, the tidal volume of a whale in a, in a, in a lung capacity perspective, and that's the source of their capacities. You know, other people are, you know, more efficient at converting oxygen into mechanical work than, a Toyota Prius, you know, and they're insanely efficient um, biomechanically and physiologically, and and that's the source of their capacities. But there's so much sort of uniqueness in individuals that I think one of the difficulties in a in a squad environment is sometimes you can potentially be trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And so I don't have a a set sort of dogma of um, training philosophy of you know we do x then we do y then we do z and and i'm going to just kind of try and smash that square peg that you are into this round hole of structure and process um i base everything around the individual and and what they perceive their strengths and weaknesses are and what they're looking to excel at and what their sort of um, injury history is like what their athletic history is like the style of racing that they're now doing what do the race dynamics require 
um, and all of these things. And so really with Ashley, it was just a case of sitting down and doing that and saying, right, okay, this is, you know, let's start at the end and work backwards. And, you know, why do we want to be? How do we want to do that? What's it going to require? And where are we at now? And then let's do that sort of gap analysis and leave it up to me and, and I'll work on that. And, you know, it, it's never been a case of showing up at these races and going, if you hit these numbers, you're going to win. You know, it's it's been a case of showing up at these races and and basically making sure that you know she was prepared to race, and then the chips will fall where they're full. And you know, I, I I'm not one of those coaches that will sit here and say to an athlete before a race, you know, I think that you know you're going to run a one fifteen, you know, a one fifteen twenty, you know, and they run one fifteen thirty and. Because I just think the racing dynamics are so wildly uh, impactful that you can just prepare people to execute the best possible way, but you have to hold the process accountable along the way. So you have to be doing some form of benchmarking or litmus testing of the process of training to make sure that you're progressing. But but racing, you know, racing's racing, so it, it could pan out any way. You just want athletes to be as prepared as possible. And, and that's all that we've done um, with Ashley. You know, she's talked about how going into Ibiza, you know, she felt pretty ill. Um, and and so we talked just before the race and I said, look, just, just go out there and just don't have any expectations. Just see what happens. And you get you got to saw what happened. Can you take me a little more inside this process? Like I want to I want to dig a bit deeper into it. So 2022 Ash comes to you, she's been in a team environment. You're, you know, bringing her into this system of individualization with you for the first time. Uh you're trying to fill that gap between where she is and where she needs to get to. Take me into that a little bit more specifically with Ash in terms of what it was you figured out you needed to work on, what you discussed you needed to work on, and how you actually implemented that. Well, I think if I break it down by sport, and it, it, to an extent, it, it would apply to, to many athletes. Um, but you know, everybody knows that Ashley can run well. So with the running, it was very much a case of her and I discussing what she felt worked well for her um, based on her you know, running history, injury history, training history. Um, and I can look back through training peaks. I can look for patterns. Um, I can do some deep dive on, you know, loading um, in, rela- in relation to the running and the intensity. But the reality is, is that just asking her and saying, you know, what do you felt has worked well? What do you feel has pushed you over the edge? What do you feel you've responded to well? Um, and, and that's not me maybe necessarily like lacking in the knowledge. It, it, it's actually just a case of respecting the fact that there's sort of, you know, a hundred ways to skin a cat, you know, I'll give you an example, like in, in terms of doing VO2 max work, you know, a very, very traditional approach would be to say to people, you're going to do four times four minutes at this power. And that's your main set in this bike session. Um, that's a very traditional bread and butter VO2 max workout. But the reality is, is for some athletes that might be on a given day, might be cognitively far too demanding. 
And so actually, if I say to that athlete, look, I need you to do 16 minutes of work at VO2 and you can have eight minutes of recovery. So that's a two to one ratio. And you can pizza slice that up however you like, depending on how you feel. But I just really care about 16 minutes of work that allows them to go into that session with a lot more autonomy, um, a lot less cognitive potential stress uh, and still execute the philosophical intent of the of the session. So, you know, that's a very specific example. And kind of going back to Ashley and the question you asked. So with the run, it was about basically working out, you know, what's the minimum effective dose for the maximum performance um, based on what she was able to educate me on in terms of what worked well for her. With the bike, um, it was a case of getting her used to being in that aerodynamic position. You know, she'd done things like uh, she'd done things like Noosa, um, but um, and, and a couple of other long dis uh, middle distance races. But she hadn't spent a great deal of time in the air in the aero position, so it was a case of working on that. It definitely wasn't a case of just slamming her into the most aerodynamic position we could think of straight away, because that has that has capacity implications and mobility implications. So it was a case of starting at a base point and then going, okay, how do we fine tune this? And you know, what is comfortable, what's not comfortable, what impacts on your power production, what doesn't impact on your power production. And then slowly building on that over time through some equipment choices and some position tweaks. And that's all that we've done, um, as well as continue to work on just improving her ability to push. Uh, I'm not going to say big power, but to push big speed over, uh, you know, uh, over the 90K distance, over the 80K distance. Because the reality is with a lot of these elite athletes, yes, they can push big watts per kilo. But really, in this day and age, what you care about is, you know, watts per kilometer per hour for a simplistic number. Um, so I've had situations with an athlete where, you know, they've gone, oh, that that wasn't a good race because I've, you know, historically I've pushed 20 watts more in a 70.3. And I said, yeah, but you didn't go as fast as you went in this race. So, you know, things are progressing in, in the right way, just maybe not in the way that you thought they should. Um, and the swim, um, you know, I'm not saying anything that isn't sort of publicly spoken about that, um, Ashley's swim in ITU racing wasn't her strength. Um, and coming into middle distance racing, we just took the point of view that we needed to make sure that she had the skill set to excel, you know, in middle distance racing and to continually work on improving that. So whether that at certain points of the year was, you know, working on having more of a gearbox um, for sort of, you know, takeout speed, accelerations, bridging gaps, or whether it was just sustained capacity. Um, so effectively a higher swim threshold. Um, you know, there's different ways you, that you would come at that from a training perspective, but those were the two pieces of the puzzle that we, you know, have continued to work on and we continue to work on and, that that's really as simple as it is. Something most of you probably don't know is that I coach a few triathletes on, on the side of doing this podcast. And recently I took on a couple of new athletes. 
One of those athletes have been saying to me they felt ridiculously tired every morning and they really struggled with getting up for their morning sessions. And when they did do them, they just didn't enjoy them or really want to be there. So we put a whoop strap on them for one week. We gathered some data and we noticed that their sleep score was really, really bad. It was in the 30% range and they were only getting about 6 to 6.5 hours sleep on average per night. I recommended to the athlete that they just try taking pillar performances triple magnesium every night before bed for two weeks to see if it made a difference or not and that we'd revisit the data once they'd done that. And sure enough, five days in, they messaged me and they were like, oh, I'm already sleeping way better. I'm keen to see the data after two weeks. And so when we got to that two-week mark, their sleep score was about 85%. And the biggest thing in my opinion is they were now averaging 8.5 to 9 hours sleep per night, which is just a crazy difference. And the only thing they changed was taking Pillar Performance's True Magnesium 30 minutes before bed every night. They didn't miss a single night. And I've been saying that for over a year uh, here, every single week. But taking pillar performance of true magnesium, in my opinion, 30 minutes before bed every night really does help everyone. So if you want to try it for yourself, head over to Pillar Performance's website or get it on the feed.com. Use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off your order. So when you were chatting to Ash about her run, which is what she's now very famous for, what was it that she felt had worked for her in the past? What, what did she felt hadn't worked with her in the past, for, for her in the past? And then what have you guys done over the, the last two years based off that? Um, I think Ashley's always made it clear that she's not a volume athlete. Um, so we haven't chased volume on the run and we haven't chased volume and intensity. Um, uh, you know, I, when you, when you look at the implications on of of training stress on the body spending a lot of time around upper tempo threshold low threshold if you're if you're thinking of like a five zone model like you know recovery endurance tempo threshold vo2 anaerobic if you think about that that model spending a lot of time around you know upper tempo threshold low threshold is extremely demanding on the body and it's extremely cognitively demanding. And so you need to be a little bit careful with that, particularly if those numbers and those, those zones align with race specific intensities, because there's only so much that of that you can load an athlete up with. Um, and then if you get to a point where you've been sort of banging that drum and banging that drum and then you sort of go, right, well, how do we iterate from here? You, you don't really have anywhere to go. You know, you can't really load that athlete up with more intensity. It's very difficult to load that athlete up with more volume because you're already doing a decent amount of volume and a lot of it is moderately hard. So you've got nowhere to go. And that's where athletes get into issues of monotony, you know, plateauing or even injury. And, and so with with Ashley, it was always a case of understanding that we need to stay relatively polarized with the training. And I'm not necessarily saying 80-20, I'm just saying relatively polarized. Um, and then from that, segueing into race-specific powers and paces in, in smaller doses than you might do with another athlete. And, and that's the approach that we've taken. So when you say that she has always stressed and known that she's not a, a high volume athlete 
have you pushed the volume at all to see or do you just trust that and go okay well we'll stay relatively low volume or do you do you sort of still experiment throughout your your coaching process with her no i mean i think there's i think that's a two-way conversation um i've always respected the fact she said seven hours of running a week is not going to be what's going to do her any favors um and it and it's very difficult to look at things in silos and say okay well we do this with the run without understanding that it might impact on swim and the bike uh training um and if you turn that on its head um an interesting example that um i was talking with an athlete about um and i don't know the athlete concerned i don't know them personally this wasn't this was sort of secondhand, but um, Braden Curry before one of the, the Ironmans that he did down in Australia, apparently had had some foot injury and so was doing massive, massive, massive amount of swim volume um, and very little run training. Um, and then went into that race and had a really, really good marathon. Um, and I guess you could argue that there'd obviously been some physiological crossover there so you when when you have to sort of respect that there's that interplay between the swimming and the biking and the running i'm i'm very reluctant to push the envelope in any one discipline with an athlete without them saying you know i think this is reasonable or i you know let's not do that um particularly you know stepping away from ashley but particularly with bigger male athletes there's um a desire for them to want to do quite a lot of volume because they can on the bike because of just their sheer physiology. And so when they take that and they apply it to the running, they, they forget that just basic physics and you know, the, the loading on joints, ligaments, and tendons when you weigh 80 kilos is significantly more than when you weigh 52 kilos. So, so you know, going after running hundred K a week is maybe not a very smart thing to do. Um, in that type of individual um with ashley it was just a case of me always talking to her about what she felt comfortable doing run volume wise and, and not really pushing the envelope too much and then and then it was all the sort of the small adjustments in speed or you know this session is lactate tolerance or this session is lactate clearance or um just just different stimuli or this session is a very race specific scenario or even turning on its head and saying to her right you know this particular run session you're going to do a warm-up and then you're going to do 50 minutes so fairly close to race intensity um and within that you're going to execute a certain number of visualized scenarios now I'm not going to make those up. I'm telling her that I want her to make those up. I want her to visualize those scenarios to actually think about a particular course or a particular individual and, and doing something that she would do in a race. And I might say three intervals like this within that 50 minutes and then, you know, cool down for 20 minutes. So it's using those types of tools to elicit progression than coming at it from sort of a lab rat position and saying, okay, we've tested your economy. We've tested your VO2 max. You need to do this number of intervals at that intensity. And that's not a dig at the Norwegians. That's just my view on the dangers of getting too hung up on, uh, on any coach or any athlete getting too hung up on, 
you know, VO2 max numbers or lactate measurement numbers. Um, that's is this actually making the boat go faster? You know? Given that we did have Olav on last week, that that I'm going to yes. confirm that's a definite dig at him, and we're going to start some beef with the Tilbury Davis versus uh, <laughs> Alexander Boo camp. Uh, that can be a story <laughs> in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> you can you could stir that pot, but yeah, I know yeah. I, I have masses of respect for what they do. I think the interesting thing um, for me is what I've picked up on listening to to him to him talk is actually still like most of what they achieve is down to the relationships and the communication. Yeah. So you know all the science stuff is sexy, and it's you know headlining, but the reality is it's it's about relationship working relationships and, and communication um and that and it is in any coaching role Olav would love the banter though he's actually behind this is the thing people <laughs> don't know about Olav that i didn't know either until i started getting to know him more is that you listen to him on a podcast like that's the only way i'd heard from him or on a youtube video and you think he's so serious and he's so sciencey and he's a bit ner- bit nerdy but then you talk to him and like off mic, he's he all he does is joke around and like take the piss a bit. He's actually very funny. And same with Christian. No, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I met Christian in Latte briefly. Um, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, so he'll embrace the beef. That's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> back to Ash. So where did you ultimately fall in terms of, okay, so she doesn't want to run seven times a week for or seven hours a week. So, you know, that's, I guess that's like 85K a week or, or something like that. Where did you ultimately fall is a good amount of volume for her? Like I assume she's probably pretty consistently hitting a certain volume a week. Um, if, 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 you, if you're not going to do that seven hours a week, that, that indicates to me that you do have sort of a sweet spot with her. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, if I looked at it, um, if I looked at it sort of over the last kind of, uh last sort of six months you know what you're realistically looking at is somewhere around four to four and a half hours of running um and i wouldn't put a distance you know a distance on that simply because some of that running might be on like hilly trails some of it might be racing some of it might be on a grass track you know so if i give you a number and say it's about four hours of running a week on average um uh, four to four and a half then that's probably a better proxy for what we've been doing. You know, it's not the six, six and a half, seven that you might see some people doing. Uh, and likewise, if you, you know, take Cat Matthews's Instagram post at face value, it's not, you know, the three hours of running that she's doing. It probably is still surprisingly low for a lot of people though, knowing that Ash does, you know, 40 to 55k of running a week, probably sort of more upper end of that. But that is like, that would surprise a lot of people given that she's, along with Annie Haug, probably the best runner in middle distance triathlon. But I think you also need to understand like just the, the amount of years of running that she has in her body um, as a, as an athlete. And so when you have that situation, um, you know, adding more volume and intensity isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. Um uh, that's not uncommon in many sports is you see uh you see athletes as they get older in an in ath- athletic sense um not try to drive the capacity um up so much but actually look for 
the wins elsewhere. And you talked about that 50-minute run session, which I found really interesting. I've, I have heard of that kind of session, but it's, it's very rare. Um, usually people are a lot more prescriptive than that, you know. Hey, let's go out and do 12, three, minute, three minutes on, one minute off, or let's go out and do eight mm. times 1K. That's, that's far more common than the let's go run for 50 minutes and, you know, five or six times throughout that, let's picture a race scenario and react accordingly. Um, are all of your sessions sort of like that? Lucy goosey or or are the majority <laughs> quite prescriptive and that's the outlier uh it it varies um i have i have certain workouts which are very uh very prescriptive because they have a they're a very specific physiological intent um and there's other sessions where there's a lot more autonomy like that vo2 max type session that i talked about um earlier uh, and then there's also ones where it's um, very sort of you know psychologically driven, like the the visualization workout, um, the bike sessions. I what I tend to do is look at a lot of races and how a lot of races unfold, and then design workouts um, for a certain period of the year that reflect the racing dynamics. Um, and that comes from just experience of having lots of athletes doing lots of races. And so I'll look at power files and I'll see, and I'll look at different courses and, you know, Kona is a perfect example of how that race typically unfolds. So if you have a certain type of athlete, then you know that it's going to unfold a certain way. And so if you don't prepare them for that, um, then I think you're failing them as a coach because you're, you're not preparing them psychologically. You're not preparing them from a force production perspective. Um, you're not preparing them from a torque perspective. You're not preparing them from a metabolic perspective. And what I, what I mean by all of that is, you know, in Kona, as an example, if you're not first sort of five out of the water in that chase pack, that initial 60 minutes is always a bit of a smash fest. Now, if you haven't gotten an athlete used to that and they're used to sitting on the trainer or doing rides outdoors where they're always riding sort of 80, 85 RPM and not really deviating from that, then their muscles are going to get used to a certain contraction rate, a certain force production rate. And then they go outdoors and they do a race where it's a lot more stochastic and dynamic. Um, and they're not, they're just not prepared for that you know physiologically and metabolically and and that can be problematic um you know even overtaking a group um when i was in kona last year you know i was chatting with jimmy uh riccatello the head referee and we were talking about uh, and he talked about the pro briefing about how many women it was such a high caliber race for the you know for 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 probably the first time that a lot of women there probably aren't going to be used to riding in a group of, you know, 10 or 15 athletes. And, and his point in the race briefing was, you know, if there's 15 of you and you're all 12 meters apart, you know, you can do the math on that, but, but pretty much if you're at the back, you're only, you're only sort of, you know, 30, 45 seconds from the front of the group. So don't do anything silly like panic and try and overtake the whole group because that, is potentially going to be burning a match that's going to cost you physiologically and you probably don't need to do that you know so it's just understanding those types of race scenarios and dynamics and um 
and preparing athletes for that, uh, but still understanding that there is a foundational need for, you know, doing lots of aerobic work, for doing some threshold work, for doing some VO2 work. Um, you know, we know from at least uh, one of the things that I've sort of experienced over the years is if you give athletes a lot of that sort of bottom end of tempo type intensity, that can do a lot of good for improving um, metabolic efficiency, um, improving ability to, you know, to push good power in a race, but it might blunt the top end quite significantly. And so that might mean that suddenly, you know, as a, as a metaphor, you know, rather than having a six speed gearbox, you've got a four speed gearbox. So it's just understanding that potentially you're always robbing Peter to pay Paul, um, physiologically speaking. So going back to this specificity element of like, hey, we have Kona, for example, because it is the biggest race in the sport still. Yes. Where, say, for example, Lionel Sanders, you coached to come second in 2017, or Sky Muncher, you coached to come seventh in 2023. What is it specifically that you're doing with them on the bike to go, this is how the race generally plays out. This is how we're going to train for that. What does that training actually look like? Well, it depends. It depends on the individual. Um with um rather than sort of picking on sky or lionel i would say that you've got a couple of types of athletes and scenarios and you've got that first athlete that's going to be you know really out of the water in the first few and so what they're able to do is or what their intention should be is to sort of settle into you know a strong race slightly faster than race effort for the initial you know section up Polani, up Kuakini, Polani, and then up onto the Queen K, and then quickly settle into their race power. And to then manage the sort of the race dynamics around them. Um, then you've got the chase pack. Then you've got the situation of potentially dealing with people that are going to burn matches that are going to set their race on fire. So in a bad way so then it's having the courage to push uh, some stronger efforts having the ability to push some stronger efforts um in order to stay with that group because we know that aerodynamically speaking riding at 12 meters is better than is you know is more advantageous than riding at 20 or even riding at your own um and then you've got an athlete that might potentially not necessarily even be in that first chase pack um and then you're preparing them for the ability just to come out of the water, get onto their bike and quickly settle into their own race plan and their own pacing and just keep chipping away. And to be honest, that's what um, that's the experience that Sky went through was um, for, you know, for certain reasons, the, the swim wasn't quite where we hoped it would be. Um, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. Um, and so Sky came out of the water, put her head down and just got on with just riding, a, you know, her power and staying on top of her hydration and her nutrition. And that's the thing that people forget is if you're riding in a group of 15, you know, you know suddenly you forget to have a drink, you forget to have a gel, you, for, you know, you, and, and suddenly you're 45 minutes into the race and you haven't had any fueling and hydration. Um, and so that in one sense, that was one of the advantages that Sky had over the people in front of her 
was she came out of T1 and then just just plugged away and stuck to her process, stuck to her plan, nailed a hydration nutrition strategy and just basically played Pac-Man the whole day. Um, you know, in a, and, and that worked out well, you know, would it, would she have placed higher if maybe she'd been with that group in the swim? I mean, that's a $60 million question. Um, I can't give you a straight answer on that. Um, now, and the same with the same with Lionel. You know, Lionel was clearly always going to be trying to bridge up on the bike, and it was always a case of um, executing, you know, a certain pacing strategy, dealing with a couple of scenarios around him, potentially like riding with Sebastian or riding with Cam, um, and and preparing for the Harvey descent, um, which you know takes a certain uh, skill set and being comfortable riding at high speed and high cadence and we did some work on that um ironically we did even more work on that when we went for the canadian hour record um and one once you have that tool set and you, you hope that an athlete you know sticks to the nutrition hydration strategy that you give them then um you know, they're setting themselves up for success on the run if you've never used form goggles before, you're missing out. As soon as you put them on and wear them for your first swim session, you get out of the pool and you realize, I wish I'd been wearing these for the last few years. They give you live pace as you swim so you don't have to look at the clock or try and guess what pace you're swimming as you're doing your intervals. And you don't have to try and click start and stop on your watch every interval, which is something I really like. And something else I really like is that you can put workouts into the goggles. So before you go swimming, you just chuck the workout into them. And then when you jump in the pool, literally all you have to do is follow what your goggles say. They really make boring solo swims fun and motivating. So if you're someone like me who gets a little bit bored going to the pool by yourself, they're literally perfect for you. Head to Form's website and use the discount code HTT15 at checkout when you buy some for 15% off plus a year's free um, premium membership and realize why every professional athlete you see seems to be wearing them. They really do make swim training more motivating, funner and, and way more specific and easier if you are doing sessions and workouts. You'll love them, I guarantee it. And so going back to Ash Gentle, um, 2024 is now upon us. Uh, she's the PTO number two ranked uh, female triathlete in the world most successful PTO female triathlete uh, that we've had so far in the, the short two years. What, do you, what is Ash's year going to look like in 2024 and, and, and how are you guys preparing for that? Um, with any athlete, it's trying to avoid trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, one of the things that I do with all of my athletes is at the end of the year, we sit down and we go through a sort of a year-end review process and we look at things and we say, okay, what went well? You know, what could go better? Um, you know, what did you get from a coaching perspective that really uh, helped and added value? And, you know, what did you not get that, you know, you really sort of are remiss about not getting? Um, are there things within the coaching relationship that uh, work really well? Are there things that really pissed you off? Um, are there things within the training that you really enjoyed? Are there things that you really hated? And that, in essence, that sort of 360-degree feedback process allows us to lay the foundations for the following year and say, okay, well, these are the things that we want to work on based on 
the racing calendar that we have, you know, we know that these races are going to entail this style of racing. Um, and we need to prepare you for that. And if your physiology doesn't um, currently align with that very well, then we need to figure that out. And if it does, then we just need to sharpen the saw a little bit. Um, I, I, I try not to overcomplicate things and I try to avoid um, jumping on the latest sort of bandwagon of, you know, this style of training or that style of training, because, you know, over time, it's just been shown that the probably the most important thing is consistency of training and psychological well-being. And there was a there was a research study done with I think it was about 23 Olympic coaches. It was done by UK Sport a couple of years ago. And it was about 23 Olympic coaches across a range of sports. And um and they asked them to kind of hone in on you know, what it is they did from a tapering perspective, because the, the ethos of the research was tapering. And they wanted to understand, you know, what effectively is the optimal taper. And, and the main finding from that research with athletes at that level was pretty much the two weeks leading into the race. It wasn't so much about the training. I mean, yes, there's a certain amount of training that needs to be done and it needs to be the training that the athlete feels they respond well to. But the reality, the the 80% of the success, not, not, not the 20%, but the 80% of the success was making sure that athlete has their head screwed on properly and they're in a good place, ready to race um, from a strategy and a tactics and an execution perspective. So that's confidence, um, wherever that confidence comes from, having done a certain session or run a certain pace. Uh, for some people, it's just motivationally you know, driven. For other people, it's like, I have to have done this session um so it's figuring all of that out and and that's that's the main driver of what i'm trying to achieve with my athletes and for that means for ashley this year we we have a sense of how those pto races will go um we are focusing on the pto races um we do want to achieve as much success as possible um does that mean that we're going to you know win every race i have absolutely no idea am i going to try to ensure that she wins every race absolutely um so that's really where we're coming at it from do you think it's possible that with an ash athlete like ash uh who every time she races a pto race is in contention to win it is it possible for her to do all eight to ten races and win them all or is it just not physiologically possible for her it's not physiologically possible for anybody to do that. Um, I think there's a, I think you can only peak a certain number of times a year. And I think what people don't understand with elite athletes, um, and this is particularly prevalent in long distance, in middle to long distance racing, because the, the length of the race and the, how arduous it is on the body requires a certain amount of taper and a certain amount of recovery. Nobody's bouncing back. Nobody is like, from a stress hormone perspective, like, you know, actual blood markers, you know, nobody's bouncing back from an Ironman or 70.3 in three days. Okay. Fact. So they might feel that they're kind of, you know, bringing their A game seven days later, but the reality is it's unlikely. Um, so 
when we understand that and we know that again with elite athletes like the, the price of getting incrementally slightly fitter is exponentially larger from a training stimulus perspective than it is for an age grouper and and what i mean by that is if you want to get sciencey about it is if you look in like training peaks you have that that graph that's that sort of performance management chart and you've got sort of fitness and fatigue there you know you've got the the pink one which is the fatigue and you've got the 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 fitness one which is the blue line and you obviously are hoping that that is trending upwards all the time now when an athlete does it when any athlete does a workout there's a fatigue response and that fatigue response lasts a certain amount of time and the implication of that is it gets a fitness stimulus now there's a relationship between those two um and that you can think of it as a cost benefit ratio for your typical age grouper that ratio might be like four to one for an elite athlete it's more like 10 to one now what does that mean in real terms of training what it means in terms of real terms of training is if you race too much over a couple of months and then effectively you're going to get to a point in July, where you're now lacking, significantly lacking in aerobic fitness relative to how you were in February, because you've been tapering and recovering and tapering and recovering and tapering and recovering so many times that whilst your racing prowess, for want of a better word, has potentially improved, your actual underlying base fitness has declined because you haven't had enough physiological stimulus to drive capacity. And I see this commonly in a lot of athletes and it's it's there isn't an exact formula for solving it because it's very athlete dependent. But the reality is, is with a lot of elite athletes that they need to figure out that for them, there's a certain frequency of racing, which is the sweet spot. And there's a certain frequency of racing, which is the recipe for a lack of success in the back end of the year. And that's the that's the job of any good coach is like to figure that out you know i I coach athletes who tend to respond well to a very high volume of training and reasonable racing frequency but that's partly because their taper isn't really a taper by most people's standards but for this athlete that's what works best so hypothetically speaking say an athlete of ash's caliber like so the group is really Arnie Haug, Ash Gentle, Taylor Nibb and Lucy Charles Barclay, without any disrespect to anyone else, I think they're the four best in the world. What do you hypothetically think is the most PTO races one of them could win in a year if there were eight to ten races? I mean, with with judicious season planning, I think somewhere between five and six. I think five, probably. Do you think that's a do you think that's a weakness of the PTO tour having so many races? Like it's not F1 where you can turn around from a, a physiological perspective. Like if you have uh 10 races, for example, or, or eight races at the lower end, it's not and we're saying it's not physiologically possible to be your best for all of them. Do you think that's a strength or a weakness in the in the PTO tour? Um, I think the the number of races in the PTO tour are always going to allow for certain individuals to not be at certain races um you know what happens if um i'm using you know what happens if you know ashley's 
brother is getting married the same weekend as um one of the PTO races um and it's more important to her to be at that wedding then you know she's not at that race so um i mean that that's a simple example um there could be lots of reasons an athlete might choose to look at the PTO calendar and say oh actually um I'm only going to do these races. I'm not going to do those races. And that might mean that they only do do six races out of eight or or even 10, let's say in 2025 or 2026, there's 10 races on the circuit. And I think from the PTO's point of view, that's it's also beneficial to have that number of races because it allows you to mix things up a little bit, to bring in individuals that will spice things up, that, you know, that, there's going to be athletes that potentially get to do PTO events after the Olympics that will impact on the race dynamics and make it interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's people out there that think that the ITU athletes will just come into middle distance racing and just smash everybody. And, you know, I think, Hey, that's very disrespectful. Uh, I think it's not, you know, that would be like being in athletics and, saying to somebody that is a 1500 meter runner that, oh, you're now going to go and do 3k steeplechase and destroy everybody. And that's just not true. So the reality is there's definitely people that have the physiological skill set to excel at both. Um, but there's also plenty of athletes that will be successful at short course racing that could come in and, and spice things up. So from a raising, raising the profile of the sport, bring more eyes to the sport, um, it's in the PTO's interest and it's in the interests of athletes to embrace um, those types of individuals being brought into the race, you know, after August, after the Olympics. Um, and in the long term, that will benefit everybody um, because some of those athletes might discover, oh, actually, I'm more physiologically suited to this middle distance stuff than I am to the long distance, to the short distance stuff. Um, and there might be athletes that discover that actually, I'm more suited to Ironman racing than I am in you know, a middle distance racing. I, I think we're going to see a three tier sport. Um, and I think that's good. Um, athletes will be able to specialize and, and some might have the ability to cross over. Um, but I don't think one is better than the other. It's, it's just different. It's different, different sports, different racing, um, different strategy and tactics. David, can I ask you a question that you're not allowed to sit on the fence for uh, just as a once-off? <laughs> Come on, then. Because I know it's tricky, but oh, just one for the whole podcast. If Ash is at her best at a PTO race in 2024 and Lucy Charles Barclay, Taylor Nib, and Annie Haug are also there and also at their best, who is the biggest threat to Ash winning that race? Ah, uh, ooh. <laughs> um, given that I know Lucy, that's... um. Uh, as a tough one um i would say um anna honestly because i uh my impression is i don't think that anna has particularly focused on 100k distance racing and i think as a consequence if she does then I, I I think she's currently probably the most dangerous person. Um, 
everybody knows how Taylor's going to race. Everybody know how Lucy's going to race. Um, uh, everybody has a sense of how Ashley and, and, and Anna race. But I think from a training perspective, you know, you look at what Taylor is working towards, which is the Olympics. Um, you look at uh, how Lucy has excelled in all her races and you look at her strengths. Um, you know, I think the most dangerous person of that bunch is is Anna. If Annie Haug hadn't had that mechanical issue at Singapore, how do you think the battle between Ash and Annie would have gone? Um, it would have been epic and it would have been ugly. <laughs> I'm not going to say who would have won, but I, I think they would have been shoulder to shoulder just trying to murder each other for, you know, 18K on the run. Um, and that would have been pretty special to see. Yeah, um, we were robbed of that one, weren't we? Yeah, um, and it might, you know, we might get to see that this year. So who knows? Everyone's always confused about what nutritional products they should be using while they train and race and never really knows if what they're using is the best option for them. I can tell you from my experience of trying about 20 to 30 different brands over probably the last eight to 10 years that Precision Fuel and Hydration is by far my favorite. I started with Precision by trying their PF30 gel, which I really liked. And then I tried their drink mix, which I probably liked even a little bit more before finding the product from them that really took them from being, I think, my equal favorite brand at the time to, without question, my favorite brand, the PF90 gel. It's seriously amazing. And then more recently, I've been experimenting with their brand new Flow gel. And honestly, I think it's now taken over as my favorite nutritional product I've ever used in my life. I don't ever do long rides or runs or hard sessions without it now. And if you're racing triathlon, particularly long course triathlon, or you're going to do a marathon, it's just the perfect way to get fuel in. Try it for yourself. Head to Precision Fuel and Hydration's website and use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off your first order. Okay, now uh, 50 minutes of, of Ash Gentle Talk. We, we've got to make room <laughs> for the main event, which is obviously Lionel Sanders. And I know how fond you are of talking about this topic. Uh, um, <laughs> tell us a bit about the, the Lionel Sanders relationship. You know, you coached him multiple times. I, I think he maybe moved away from you multiple times. Just, just fill us in for, for people who don't know about the story and, and everything that unfolded with you two uh, as a coach and athlete. Um, I mean, I preface this by saying, you know, there's a lot of truly great athletes that I've worked with over the years and I've had the privilege to, to work alongside. And, um, you know, in terms of the, the catalyst for, I guess, people being more aware of me as a coach, I would say it wasn't Lionel. It was actually Corin Abraham, um, who, you know, when I started working with her, started to have a lot of success at particularly regional championships, uh, Ironman. But then in 2016, um, after Kona, uh, Lionel and I spoke and we came to an agreement that, that potentially I might be able to help him problem solve, you know, what he was trying to do. Um, so I gave him some, you know, advice leading into Arizona in 2016 and, then, you know, after he recovered from Arizona, we we spent some time together face to face. Um, um, back home in Canada, I went I went up to see him at the time I was living in Texas, and um, and then through 2017, um, we were collaborating. Um, you know, I'd be very respectful of the fact that it was a 
2017 and 2016, 2017, it was a very much a relationship of I would give Lionel my wisdom um, and what I think was best for him to do um, in order to, you know, progress as an athlete um, and some of the things to address, like, say, you know, equipment choices from a training perspective and, and a racing perspective. So, for instance, the using rollers. Um, but that was always in an advisory capacity. I wasn't like writing every single one of his workouts in training peaks. Um, you know, he was still, um, taking what I was giving him and then, um, interpreting that, um, based on what he felt worked best on that day of the week. I would say that probably 60, 70% of the time, you know, it was pretty much what I wrote. Um, that, uh, and, and other times he would um, interject what he felt was was best for him to do. And, and that's very much how the relationship went through 2017. Um, you know, we worked on some things like um, swim technique. Um, I'm trying to think. He'd been working with Jay Rodriguez um, uh, up for a period of time. Um, and then he wasn't working with Jerry when I was working with him. So when I saw him face to face in December, we did some work on his swim. Um, and then the other times that I saw him face to face, we, you know, we kind of revisited that, um, with some video analysis and some, you know, tutorial, um, and technique advice. Um, and then, um, we also focused in on nutrition aspects um, so certainly we, we looked at sodium losses, uh, as early as 2017. Um, and when we were out in Kona, um, for the, the week before the race, um, in fact, the weekend before the race, you know, we rode the whole bike course and we, we tested, um, the, the strategy that, that, that I suggested he should, he should go with, um, and, um, there was no negative effects with that. So um, he had, you know, uh, all the advice I could, I could give him, you know, at the time. Um, and then after that race, you know, we went our separate ways um, and uh, he went back to self-coaching. Um, and then after Kona in 2018, um, Lionel reached back out to me um, and I said to him, I was more than happy to, you know, to, to help him out again. Uh, obviously leading into 2019, we went out to Kona in February. Um, I remember it quite well because we went out to Kona in February. We were there a week doing a bunch of testing, Talbot was with us. And then I flew back home. He flew back uh, home. Uh, then about a week later, I went to the UK to do some aerodynamics testing with an athlete. And then literally like the week, the next week, you know, the whole world shut down with COVID. So, um, so through that 2019 period when Lionel was living in Tucson, you know, we had to get creative. So there was some online racing. There was some trying to do the Strava segment up Mount Lemon. Um, and then there was the Canadian hour record that we broke. Um, and that had a lot of input from a lot of individuals, you know, people with specific skill sets and equipment choices and Canyon, um, and 
after the hour record, we then moved into sort of 2020 season. Um, and I guess really the main focus of 2020 season was sort of requalifying for Kona and and the battle, the battle royale with with Jan. Um and and unfortunately, um, you know, things basically started to 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 break down um leading into Kurd Lane. And then he had the experience in Kurd Lane that he had. And then after the Battle Royale, you know, we went our separate ways. Um and you know there's I still have a lot of a lot of respect and love for Lionel. I saw him in Lati um when he was over for that race. Um I know that he's going back to Ironman racing. Um I hope that he you know, can take all the things that he learned over the last couple of years and particularly what worked for him well in 2017 and um and build on that. Um so that's that's really the sort of you know history of working with Lionel uh, with myself. But you know, as I said, there's a lot more to me than just Lionel. If you look back at the 2017 year that Lionel Sanders had, which was one of the great years in triathlon, he I think he didn't come Oh, he he would have won he would have won or come second at every race. I should get it up really, and he probably won like ten or so races throughout that year. Um, and one of the races he lost was the the famous second place finish at Kona to Patrick Lang, where he he led for a, a large portion of the day. And I think if if you had PTO rankings uh, back then, I, I kind of looked at this earlier uh, early last year. He would have finished twenty seventeen as the number one ranked PTO male athlete in the world. So that's without question, um, looking back on his career, the best year he's ever had. Do you look at what's happened since then with Lionel? And I know you you worked together with him with him since then, but it was a little bit more sporadic to, and, and the COVID thing like you talked about. Do you, do you look back at that 2017 year and think, well, now we're seven years on from that. If he just stuck with me from there, we could have achieved even more? Um, I think it would be arrogance and hubris to say yes. Um, do I think it would have had a positive impact on him um, from a racing perspective? I think I'm confident that it probably would have, but to say that he would have had more success would be, I think, pretty arrogant. Um, you know, I think we we got on well. I was very respectful of, you know, what he, you know, he felt worked for him and his understanding of his body and and he was you know, very respectful of what I was trying to bring to the table. Um, you know, has he matured as a, as a human being? You know, of course he has, you know, especially through fatherhood. Have I matured as a human being? Yeah, of course I have. I'm, you know, you know, it's seven, eight years later. So, you know, our characters and personalities have evolved. Has the sport moved on significantly? Um, if I sat here and said the recipe for success in Kona in 20, uh, let me think for the, for the men in 2024 is the same recipe for success as it was in 2017, I would be failing as a coach. So, you know, the sport has moved on, the demands are different. The, the, the professionalism across athletes is different, um, subtly. So, and I mean, what I mean by that is sort of, you know, everybody's going to the wind tunnel, everybody's dialing in their position, everybody's 
focusing on dialing in their nutrition and testing it and testing it and testing it. And everybody knows how to do heat preparation training, you know, using hot bars and a sauna and everybody knows how to do altitude camps. So, you know, and how does that impact on their body? So, you know, there's all, all the big rocks of performance enhancement, you know, pretty much everybody's got those under control now. And so that's moved the game on. Um, and so the, you know, now the recipe for success in Kona is different. You know, there's a certain level of swimming that is hands down required. There's a certain level of biking. You know, if you wanted me to put some numbers on it um, to scare people, you know, I would say that if you legitimately want to be excelling in Kona, you probably need to be pushing at least 320 to 300, uh, probably like 320 to 330 watts and still be able to run well, you know, i.e. not to not have metabolically destroyed yourself. You know, there's a lot of athletes that probably could ride, you know, 330 watts in Kona and 90% of them would then run terribly off the back of that. So you've got to figure that out. I reckon Sam Laidlow might be uh, pushing closer to 350 watts this year, 340, 350, which is pretty scary to think about. Um, pass. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we passing on that one? I, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't. I, I think somebody pushing 350 watts in an Ironman, um, I would question the accuracy of their power meter and I would question and, and running well. Let, let me, let me carry out that. And I would, I'd have my views that that's not particularly metabolically possible just because if you look at, if you do, you know, lab testing and you look at sort of, you know, fat metabolism and you look at like really, really, really high levels of like ability to metabolize fat and then, you know, how much somebody weighs, how much power they're pushing, cda and and then you go right well how many grams of carbs is that going to equate to i think pushing 350 i just it doesn't it's like two plus two equals five and running well you know it just doesn't doesn't add up so sam wants to go out there and prove me wrong you go for it sam laidlow but um i don't believe it's metabolically possible to ride at 200 uh, 350 watts and then run 240 Maybe it'll or be, less. Maybe it'll be more like three thirty, but I just reckon that bloke's capable of I mean, anything. But yeah, but there's, but there's a bunch of people that have ridden that and broken bike course records and run like sub two forty five. You know, so that that's you know, that's nothing out of the ordinary. Three fifty is a different kind of fish. So sorry, I'm gonna <laughs> hold you to that. Yeah, I reckon Sam or Magnus could do it. They're the two I would like. I just go, it would not surprise me if they rode 340 watts at Kona. Maybe 350 is a bit high, but if either of them, I saw their power files after Kona this year, and if one of them won it and they said, yep, we, we rode 340, 345 watts, I would 100% go, yep, I believe that. I mean, I think the thing you also have to bear in mind is like, let, let's not hide behind the fact that, you know, in Kona, you know, there are a lot of media bikes. Um, and referee bikes that are all trying to be respectful of the rules, but it doesn't get away from the fact that they are physically there. That that impacts on aerodynamics um, and airflow. That that's indisputable, um, and also, you know, group riding dynamics. Um, 
you know, at 12 meters, we know that there it's aerodynamically beneficial uh, comparative to 20 meters or comparative to riding on your own. So again, that's a fact. That's not me being sensationalist. Um, so when you factor those two things in and then you put a number on it and say, you know, 340, 350, what you're actually talking about is somebody pushing significantly more power um uh to to be riding at the same speed and and that's where um i just i, I don't see it as practical or feasible i think um you know if 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 we're expecting athletes to ride sub 4 hours in kona um then i'm there's other factors at play i just i I'm struggling to see how athletes are going to do that. I reckon if 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 it's going to happen, uh, and we got to get a good day in 2024 with the field that'll be there, Christian, Laidlow, Ditlev, etc., Gustav Eden if he's back, it just would not shock me if the the winning bike split was 359, 358. Like I'm not saying it's going to happen, but wouldn't, yeah, and it wouldn't, won't, wouldn't shock. Yeah, me. and it won't, but it won't be. My point would be it wouldn't be a solo ride. Yeah, uh, yeah, I hear your point. Um, whether that's true or not, it just uh, it wouldn't shock me if it actually happened. Whether that's because they've just pushed crazy power and it's been completely fair, or whether you know they work together a bit too close, or whether there's bikes involved, whatever it is. Well, I wasn't saying I wasn't saying that they were riding. I wasn't saying they were riding illegally. I was just saying. I know. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. To... I know what you're yeah. saying. Uh, just uh, all I'm saying is like, no matter like how it happens, you know, whether there's some media bikes who accidentally get involved for a bit too long or or, you know, athletes or whatever it is, it just wouldn't shock me if we actually did see a sub four-hour ride this year uh, be the winning mm. time. Um, do you read these bees are on me if there is. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Do you want to put – oh, I was going to say do you want to put a bet on it, but I reckon it will be like 402 <laughs> or something like that. I reckon, I reckon Laidlow will ride like 401, 402, and Ditlev will be like 405. That would be my prediction. Right. Okay. Let's look back on it and see. Definitely. If you're going to be taking your triathlon seriously in 2024, then now is the perfect time to get yourself a Win Republic tri-suit. Win Republic tri-suits have undergone extensive aerodynamic testing. Um, they're ridiculously comfy to swim and run in, and they've got all the practical little details covered, like extra pockets for your gels. It's not often you get a really aerodynamic and fast tri-suit that is comfy, but Win Republic have just nailed that. And I do think the other thing Win have always done and they've probably always done better than everyone else, is they make tri-suits that actually look good. And there is something about wearing a fun tri-suit that looks great that it just makes you really excited to race in it. And now is the perfect time to get yourself one because you can test it out in your pre-season training before you get stuck into your serious races. I personally, again, think it's really important that you do some long and hard sessions in your tri-suit before you race in it um, so that on race day, it's something you're completely used to. So definitely take advantage of the time you've got now in training before your, your next big race um, to get used to your tri-suit, use it on some long rides, use it on some sort of harder runs. Um, I think a lot of people don't run in their tri-suit enough, but now is, is literally the perfect time. Um, so head over to Win Republic's website, use the discount code TTH15, that gets you 15% off your tri-suit or anything you want to buy, um, so your whole order from Win Republic. So yeah, go and have a look. Um, there's lots of great designs and, and all of their kits uh, are super fast, super comfortable and really practical. Given how you talked about, you know, Kona's changed and the way to win Kona in 2017 is very different to 2024 and 
and what we've just been saying then about uh, how high the level is uh, with, with the current crop, um, particularly the defending champion in Sam Laidlow and the Norwegian boys. Do you think it's possible for Lionel Sanders to win Kona in 2024? Um, does Lionel have to have, does Lionel have the physiological attributes to be a Kona winner? Yes. Is that a, a possibility in 2024? That That's a tough one because um, it would take a big commitment to, you know, a, a swim training in a very focused way without any deviation from, uh, you know, a given plan over nine months, um, 10 months, um, ditto bike, ditto run. Um, you know, does he go all in on Kona with the sort of um, barely doing any racing and just doing just enough racing to, you know, qualify, be top of the Ironman Pro Series and and little else? Um, or, you know, does he race more and, and run the risk of what I talked about earlier, which is race too much and then not get enough sort of physiological stimulus? Um, I, I think he has the, I think he has the, the physiological tools. I just, it, it, I think the commitment to a given process is just the big question mark. So it's like, if you asked me to describe, if you are, if Lionel picked up the phone tomorrow and said, what do I need to do? I would be like, you need to swim, you know, you need to swim 25 to 27,000 meters a week without fail nine months straight and you still need to do your biking and your running on top of that and you still need to recover you still need to stay healthy you still need to be you know a good dad a good husband and if we can balance all of that fabulous we can't balance all of that we have a problem that's my you know that's my wisdom to him it, as yeah. a friend basically reading between the lines what you're saying is it would be very hard for him to do that I, yeah, it'd be a huge. It's a huge challenge. I mean, I think it's a huge challenge for any any athlete. I think it. I, I think it's you know hugely arrogant to say that there's a formulaic um, solution to Kona success. There's so many things at play in Kona. You know, current, chop, swell, heat, wind, humidity. You know, dropping a bottle, having to stop at you know special needs, them losing your bottles at special needs. You know, just there's so many things that can go wrong in an Ironman race. There's so many tiny decisions that, you know, you burn this one big match, you know, did you get used to riding your bike at 110 RPM and 70 kilometers an hour in a crosswind down a Harvey like descent? If you didn't problem, you know, um, there's all these tiny little things that go into the race going well that I think when we see some athletes have success there and we go, Oh, that just looks so easy. You just need to swim that bike that and run that. It's not that simple. You know, that that's a, a tiny snapshot of all the little tiny things that go into that success. So when I say, I think it's hugely difficult for Lionel, um, that's not a disrespect to Lionel. It's just saying that there's an incredibly large amount of moving pieces, whether it's Lionel, whether it's like Rasmus Svenningsen that I coach or Andrew Horsfall Turner that I coach or Josh Amberger, who I coach, you know, whether it's any of those guys, 
there's a huge amount of moving pieces that go into that perfect racing Kona. And it's just not as simple as you need to swim that, you need to buy that, you need to run that. Changing tact a bit here, David, we, I brought up Sky Munch earlier and we, we talked about her very briefly earlier. We had her on the podcast um, a few weeks back and, and she told the story about leaving her old coach, um, feeling frustrated uh, by the situation she found herself in and, and the huge emphasis on her, on her body weight. Um, and then you being the co- coach that ultimately she went to following that. Can you talk to me a little bit about that situation and how that unfolded from your perspective? Um, a bit like I talked about earlier, Sky had come to the decision already to move on from uh, from the coach that she was with um, f- for the reasons that, um, that she's talked about. Um, and she asked around, she spoke to a few people. Um, I was one of those. She spoke to some of the people that I've coached in the past and some of the people that I do coach. Um and as a consequence, you know, we had a conversation um, a little bit before. We had a conversation a little bit before Christmas um, 2023. And then we had another conversation in January after Christmas and, and sort of started then. Um, and, uh, you know, the, one of the things that she stressed was, uh, and she talked about it, was she wasn't having fun. And she said, I don't know what the answer to that is, but you need to go away and figure it out. Um, and so, um, again, with all of my athletes, it's always a case of trying to make sure that, you know, elite long distance sport is somewhat, you know, the training is somewhat sadomasochistic. Um, but it's also about having fun and enjoying it because you're not making the same amount of money as a tennis player or, or a, a PGA golfer. So, you know, we need to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that they generally speaking need to enjoy it. So with Sky, it was a lot of conversations back and forth about, you know, is this working well? Is that working well? This is what I feel you need to do. How do you feel about that? Um, and again, it's been very, very collaborative um, rather than dictatorial. Um, and, you know, Sky has been very appreciative of that and, like any coaching relationship, you know, we've knocked heads on, on a couple of things. Um, but invariably what happens is, you know, we, we butt heads on something and then, you know, we talk it through so that I understand, you know, her perspective and she understands my perspective. And then, you know, we figure out the solution that is, is best for her. Um, whether it's, you know, particular, style of training or a particular nutrition strategy or a particular equipment choice. Um, you know, that, that's how I do it with everybody. And that's what we did. Um, and you know, that's what led to, you know, not racing too much through the year and then having a, you know, a, a good Kona and, and, you know, a phenomenal performance in Florida where she was the fastest athlete, um, from North America, you know, female, female, uh, North American athlete and, you know, one of the top Ironman performances of all time. So. Is body weight something you ever talk to about an athlete that you coach? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, but, but in a context of, um, are, you know, are you, you know, do you feel like you're recovering, um, with female athletes? Um, we do, keep an eye on their menstrual cycle um i'm not tolerant of 
female athletes thinking that being amenorrheic is normal. Um, I don't think it should be something that is considered acceptable in, in endurance sport. Um, so I'm always trying to make sure that my athletes are, you know, eating well, um, and, and training appropriately and recovering appropriately such that they have a normal cycle. Um, and then in terms of body weight, it's one of those discussions where I can have the conversation comfortably have the conversation with female athletes around the physics of it. You know, it's like Newton's laws of physics to move a mass from point A to point B takes a certain amount of energy. If the mass is less, it's less energy. Yes, we can, we can validate that, but, but what's the price of that? You know, are you, um, are you actually, you know, if you, if you're, if you're you know, not eating enough um, because you think you need to restrict the amount of calories that you're getting and you've not talked to me about that or told me about that because that perspective is being driven by, you know, um, people saying things or the media or uh, body dysmorphia, um, then that will impact on adaptation to training. And please understand that those three things that I mentioned is nothing to do with Sky. I'm just talking theoretically. Um, so I can have that conversation, but generally speaking, I say to athletes, male or female, you know, are you, you know, are you fitter? Are you faster? Are you stronger? Are you recovering? Are you injury free? Yes. Then, you know, whatever you weigh, you weigh. So when it came to Sky and she came to you and she was having problems with not enjoying her triathlon, um, a bit of like a a shitty experience um, in her own words with with the previous coach, what do you do to start the process of of getting her back on the right track um, when it comes to her her enjoyment and her body image and her confidence in herself? I listen a lot to like I said, to, to what she enjoys, um, what she wants to do, uh, you know, re- choices of races is an interesting one. Um, over the years, I've often had athletes come to me and say, you know, what race should I do? You know, what, what's my race calendar? Um, and I could sit there and I could come up with a, a calendar based on sort of, you know, my physiological interpretation of their capacities and their, their skill set, But, with every single athlete without fail, I say, pick a race schedule that puts fire in your belly, send it to me. And then I'll look at that and I'll say, yeah, that makes sense. Or, you know, maybe doing those three 70.3s in six weeks is really silly. And, you know, we come to some agreement of what is a sensible race calendar. Um, And the caveats to that is, you know, is that race calendar, you know, is it logistically and financially affordable for you so that you're not compromising your quality of life? Because there are athletes sometimes that will do that. They'll make a decision to do things that actually fundamentally means that they need to live a, you know, a very monastic life. And my concern with that is, is that healthy? You know, if you're not able to spend time with your friends or your family, and actually that's important to you, you know, to your core values as a human being, not your core values as an athlete, but your core values as a human being. And that's a problem. So th- that's pretty much how we started out. We said, okay, well, what do you want to do racing wise? What excites you? Um, and, you know, this is what I think 
are the building blocks of success in in Ironman racing and um, whether it's the swim, the bike or the run. And this is what I'd like us to work on. And, you know, we can do that in a way that you enjoy. So, you know, certainly in Salt Lake City at this time of year, you know, the weather's, you know, not that great, but there's certain runs that, you know, Sky likes to do with friends and, and um, you know, they're not particularly designed to elicit, you know, some sort of, you know, specific training response based on being this number of minutes in this training zone. Um, but they still have a beneficial effect, like, you know, going for a snowy, long trail run, um, super fun and cool. And, you know, actually, what does it do? Probably makes you more resilient because, you know, your foot, your foot strike is a constant change in stride length, force production. And so it's just stressing the body in a different way, you know, over the length of the run. And that's going to build resilience. So, you know, that's an example of, you know, not losing sight of the fun. Um, and the and the swims, you know, the swims have been a um a big part of that. Um, you know, Sky takes a lot of um enjoyment out of swimming with others. And I haven't stood in the way of that. And it's the same with other athletes. I have some athletes that swim with groups, and I I never stand in the way of that because I think that that sort of social interaction, you know, is is pretty key. Um, and for some people, they they sort of need and want to be pushed by others. Um, for other people, that's not what makes them click. You know, they're they're happy to go to the pool and you know swim with us, you know, and look at the clock and and go off certain times. Um, it's you know horses for courses type thing. For about two years, I had this foot injury that was really killing my run training. I'd do this same pattern where I'd run for two to three weeks, sometimes four weeks, and then my foot niggle would come back and I'd have to take two, three, four weeks off and then I'd go, okay, it's good now. And I'd get back into my running and I'd do the same thing. I'd run for, you know, two, three, four weeks um, and then it would pop up again. And this cycle just kept repeating itself. And sometimes I would take two weeks off. Sometimes I would take as much as like eight to 12 weeks off. And I just was never getting anywhere. Like my running was just never getting any better I, like I really didn't progress at all for about two years. In fact, I, I went backwards quite a lot. Um, and then like about four to five months ago, I was at this point where I'm like, I, I was seriously just considering like maybe I just won't ever be able to run again. Um, but then in the lead up to the US Open, the PTO US Open, I saw Jan Fredino using a lever, lever running system. Um, and then a friend of mine, Hannah Wells, who's also a professional triathlete, I saw her using one a lot and talked to her and she told me about how she was using it for almost all of her running and now she's back running as, as good as she ever has and saw Laura Phillip using one and Braden Curry, Curry using one. I was like, I'm just going to try one of these. So yeah, I, I decided to buy myself a lever running system and I started using it for pretty much all of my runs. Um, in fact, for about the first four to five weeks, it was all of my runs. And um, for those of you who don't know what a lever running system is, it's a system that you put onto a treadmill and then you connect uh, it to like your hips um, using a special special pair of run shorts uh, and it just takes weight off while you run. So my body weight is about 85 kilograms and at the start I was taking like 12 to 14 kilograms off. So my body weight when I was running was like 73 to 71 kilograms. Um, and so yeah, I was just using it at my local gym where I use the treadmills and Basically, what it, what it does is because of that reduction in body weight, it reduces the load through your tendons, joints, bones, um, et cetera, so that you can do more running when you're coming back from injury or even if you're completely injury-free. Um, it's just a way to increase the volume 
and frequency of your running uh, week to week so that you prevent getting injured because um, running is just such a risky part of triathlon um, and training in general. And it really did change my run training when I started to use one. Uh, I think I've done, oh God, I reckon I've done like 20 weeks of running now where I've been able to run. And um, what I've been do- doing now is slowly reducing the amount of time I spend using my lever system um, and reducing the weight uh, I'm taking off while I use it. So now I'm only doing like one, maybe two runs in it per week. Um, and I take off about six to seven kilograms every time I do it. And I do plan to use it at least once or twice a week for 2024 for the whole year as I really think it's such a safe way to make sure um, you can do some extra running and not get injured. And I've just found that the more consistent I can be and the less injured I am and and the less breaks I have to take, then the better and better I run. Uh, Because like, yeah, for those two years, I just found out that nothing wrecks uh, my running like having to take those two, six, eight, 12 weeks off and you just you just like find no consistency all because of a stupid frustrating little niggle um because you really want to get out there and run um and so yeah like after about two months of using it i was just absolutely loving it like i i couldn't believe how much it had changed my running it was the most pain-free i'd ever run i was running more consistently and more frequently week week after week and i reached out to lever um to lever movement to see if they'd be interesting in partnering with the podcast in 2024 just because i loved the product so much i was like i just want to tell people about this so be awesome if they um partnered with the podcast like they didn't give me the the lever running system i went and bought one all uh, for myself um so it's not like they gave me it and i was promoting it because of that it's like this is a product i'm using i'm loving it and i just want to promote it um and they came back and said yeah they'd love to partner with the podcast so they're jumping on to support the podcast in 2024 which i'm really excited about um and if you can relate to why i started using my lever um, running system or why i'm going to keep using it every week in 2024 and would like to get one for yourself then you can head to levermovement.com and i've got a discount code that you can use it's just tth uh, which gets you a massive 20 percent off your um anything from the website so yeah that that really does take a bit of price off it um which is great um so it does support the show as well but more importantly lever is just a product i know could help so many people because i bought one myself and I just know how much I've bloody loved it and how much I'm going to keep using it in 2024 and probably even further on than that. And yeah, since I've got it, I've spoken to even more professional triathletes who I didn't, I had no idea used it because they weren't sponsored by them or anything. They were just using it um, of their own accord like me. And they've said the same thing as me that they don't have to be injured to use it. They just use it on top of their running, um, their additional, like it's just like a little additional on top of their run training so that they can increase their volume and um, their mileage and do it in a way where they don't have to risk getting injured, which, yeah, that consistency leads to their running getting um, better and better. So, yep, if you can relate and, and you want to try one or use it for yourself, levermovement.com and use the discount code TTH. I've had a few of your athletes tell me uh, about the VO2 max work that you do, uh, probably <laughs> more than any other coach, I would say. Are you like inside your squad are you famous for for the vo2 max work you do or is it just that i've happened to talk to a you know four of your athletes who have who have made that the point the key point when they talk about your training and can you talk to me a little bit about that um i think it's probably got blown out of proportion um i mean i think some vo2 max training is in is important uh, at certain times of year um how you go about that's very athlete dependent um there is a certain protocol that that i use um that's that's basically a um it's a series of it's a series of bike workouts that sort of increments in intensity where you basically 
you wake up on the morning, you get on your bike. I mean, not not straight away. I'm, I'm maybe simplifying. Um, but, you know, you do your bike session that day, you warm up and then you basically do as many intervals as you can possibly manage on the day um, at the given power output. And it's basically a minute on and 30 seconds off. And those workouts get harder as as the block progresses, the block of VO2 work progresses. Um, and, and all I ever say to the athletes is, you know, I just care about you executing the philosophical intent. So many of them say to me, well, how many reps should I do? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, if you do, if you do three, I probably need to rethink your threshold setting, you know, and if you do 40, I probably need to rethink your threshold setting. But if you do somewhere between, you know, 15 and 25, depending on the intensity, then that's the best that you had on the day. And I'm really happy. And, you know, you get a McDonald's gold star. Um, and it's a tough one for some people to wrap their head around because they kind of want to know how many reps do I need to do? And I'm like, I, I, again, I just like, I don't know. How did you sleep? How many coffees did you have? How was, you know, how was the accumulation of life stress and draining stress over the last five days? Um, I don't get too hung up on a specific number. I just, get hung up on them executing the intent. And that's a phrase I use a lot with athletes is don't get hung up so much on like specific pace, specific power, number of reps, you know, focus on, did you execute the philosophical intent and, you know, kind of circling back to somebody like Ashley, you know, one of the strengths that you see in, in many, many world-class athletes is this ability to have such a hugely heightened sense of self-awareness so that they can do certain workouts and go, yep, I did what it says on the tin, nailed it. Now, it might not match the numbers that were there as a framework for them to try and achieve, but they come back and say, that was a success. And I go, great, 100% agree, that was a success. You did what was intended. Um, and I think when you have that sense of confidence and, and humility, that's what creates, you know, consistency and success at a world-class level. So you said that you think it's important to do a bit of a VO2 block at certain periods of the year. When is that? And let's like, we could use Ash as an example, uh, you know, someone who's going to be racing PTO races, 70.3 world championships, Ironman world championships, you know, something in that, in that realm. And they've got a pretty standard year where they're off seasons, you know, December, January, and, and their season starts February, March, April, and they go through till September, October, November, um, even December this year. When, mm -hmm. when would you be using those blocks? I typically use that block early in the year. And then I'd use... Uh, not that specific block, but but other sort of ways of focusing on VO2 stimuli, um, sort of mid-season um, and, and sprinkled through the year. Um, you know, that's not to say that, that I have no structure to the entire year, no periodization to the entire year. That's not true. There is sort of a very sort of block periodization approach to, to my training that's wrapped up in the races and the athlete strengths and weaknesses um but there's certain points in the year where you might revisit 
like focusing on VO2 and there's certain points throughout the year where you might maintain a little bit of that stimulus on a regular basis. Um, you know, the run's a perfect example. Um, people's ability to run well generally improves if they run at high speed. So if you're always keeping a small sprinkling of, you know, sort of 30 to 90 second efforts um, in a workout on a regular basis, um, that's always going to help maintain good um, run mechanics, good, you know, neuromuscular capacity, biomechanics, et cetera. And is it true that you, when you do a VO2 max block, because I've, I've heard this about you, but I've never had it confirmed by you, that you're doing the like a, a little bit more than what some other coaches would be doing? For example, doing VO2 sessions every second day? So, um, yes, but let me give you the context. Um, when we look at textbooks around physiological development and we say, right, Jack, we're going to work on your threshold. Then if we look at textbooks, we say, how long is it going to take for your body to see a significant response to that threshold focus in stimulus? So let's say 80-20, you know, you, you, you do an endurance sport, 80% of your training is aerobic, but the 20% focus is going to be on your threshold. So if we focus on that, and we have to focus on that for eight to 10 weeks, because that's what the textbook books tell us um the reality that i've found is again in the uniqueness of long distance triathlon um where athletes are training predominantly more than any other athlete in any olympic sport um that swimmers don't train as much and it's non-weight bearing cyclists don't train as much and it's semi-weight bearing runners don't train anywhere near as much um so when you when you're in that situation, the cognitive again the cognitive demands are super high because you're training three sports, one of which is extremely cognitively demanding, the swim. So I have to be very respectful of athletes getting mentally burnt out. So if an athlete is focusing on developing their threshold, I'm only really going to do that for sort of three to four weeks. Because once you start pushing into the five, six-week territory of that being a focal point, absolutely guaranteed they get mentally burnt out. So when you say, I do it more often than supposedly other coaches do it, um, when it is a big focus, I would typically only do it for sort of three to four weeks, maybe five at a push, depending on the athlete. Um, I certainly would never do it for you know, eight to 12 based on a textbook. Um, do I maintain a sprinkling of VO2 work throughout the year? Um, sometimes, um, going back to what I said earlier about the run, um, but not always. So hopefully that gives you an understanding of why I do it the way I do it, as opposed to just being like, I'm trying to murder people for three weeks, which is maybe how it's come across to you. And then once you do that block, like let's say you do three weeks of VO2 where you're doing it every second day, what do you do after that? Um, after that, um, I would move into a block that's more race-specific. So um, intervals and structures of sessions that reflect racing dynamics. So going back to that block periodization, um, my typical building blocks are um, 
again, let's have the caveat of most of the training is aerobic. We're in an aerobic sport. Um, but my building blocks are sort of typically sort of um, aerobic strength and neuromuscular stimuli. Um, from that block, you go into an intensity block and that block might then be VO2 or threshold. And from that block, you go into a race specific block and that might be, you know, specific powers and paces relative to racing, or it might be scenario specific. And those three blocks kind of get cycled through throughout the year. That's what I found works well for athletes and in long distance triathlon. Um, that's uh, going, you know, going back over, you know, well over a decade or two. That's that's how I've always tended to think of things from a periodization perspective. Random question, but what's the highest volume week you've ever set any athlete you've ever coached? Oh, um, it, it'd be a wild guess because I don't track anything like that. Um, but if we're including gym work, I would wager it's probably low. If we're including, if we take the gym work off, I would say maybe almost 30 hours. Do you think that there is space in the sport for the 35 to 40 hour training weeks that some people say they do? Like, do you, when you hear those numbers, do you go, oh yeah, like they probably do that. That probably works for them. Or do you go, mm, I don't reckon they really do that. No, I think that's bullshit. I think that's the, um, that's the, I was on a training camp, living a monastic lifestyle. Everything was done for me. I didn't have to cook. I didn't have to clean, um, you know, I just got up, ate, swam, bike, ran, slept um, scenario. And and there's people that will post, you know, will, will poster up, you know, this is, yeah, this is what I do. I don't believe it. It works um, in long distance triathlon because it's, it's just the sheer metabolics of it. You know, you take some of the individuals that I work with. I, I give you an example. I coach Rasmus Svenningson. I know Joe Skipper kind of nicknamed him the Terminator. Um, you know, he's incredibly strong on the bike. You know, he's set bike course records. He's, you know, one Ironman. Um, he can happily, all day long, push 280, 290 on a long aerobic ride every day of the week. Now, if I'm giving him... 12 hours of riding a week and his average power across those 12 rides is 280 290 watts that's a huge amount of calories and even with incredibly good metabolic efficiency so when you add in the swimming and you add in the running i i, I just look at it and i go unless you're living that monastic lifestyle where everything is done for you then it's in, almost impossible for many athletes to put in that amount of hours of swimming, biking, and running. Now, could you do 31, 32 hours of training and three hours of strength work? Um, if somebody was doing all your cooking and cleaning for you, yeah, you probably could. Um, you'd probably have to be very careful with the training that you're doing, and a lot of it would be swim volume. Um, but when you see people saying that they're doing 35 hours a week and supposedly that's what they're doing all the time, I don't believe it. Another random question, and I am straying away from that uh, completely here. 
You have three okay. three women who will be racing the PTO series this year in Ash Gentle, Sky Munch, and Amelia Watkinson. Um, but you don't have any men who are guaranteed starts. Like, you know, maybe Josh Amberger gets a wild card along along the road. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that happen. Um, so I won't ask you about the women, but who do you think will win the men's PTO series this year? Ooh. You're assuming I know that who's signed a contract. Well, um, Christian Blumenfeld's not going to do it, but apart from that, pretty much everyone's going to do it, I think. Um, mm, interesting. Um, honestly, looking at the PTO rankings, sorry, so I just have to pull up the PTO rankings. Um, looking at the PTO rankings, I think on that list of individuals that have potentially signed a contract. Obviously, Jan hasn't signed a contract because he's retired. So his slot's rolling down. Um, I think Jason West is the most dangerous individual. I think, you know, if Magnus thinks, you know, he's top dog, and I'm not saying he's, you know, he has the hubris and arrogance to think that, but... I think Jason is is super dangerous over that distance. Um, I, th- I think there's a lot of incredibly talented men in that, you know, top 16, and I'm sure four others will get invited and post-Olympics. I can almost guarantee, not that I know anybody or know anything, but I would think I can almost guarantee that Hayden Wilde will be racing some PTO races. He will um, be. Uh, or even uh, scary facts, Alex Yee, maybe he gets an invite. Um but I think of those individuals, I, I I just look at that list of of names on that rankings, and I, I could pick out one or two that I think are, are incredible athletes. But I just think that when it comes to focusing on that distance, I think Jason's the most dangerous individual. Two names for you, uh, David. Do you think that Gustav Eden's a threat to him? Uh, if Gustav's bringing his A game, um, I think. You know, Gustav has just recently talked about having an injury that, you know, he's trying to figure out and um, that they've sort of finally got a handle on, if I can recall from his social media posts. Um, And if you have several months of dealing with that type of situation, um, you know, it can eat it can eat at any athlete psychologically and and it impacts on training structure. Hopefully he can recover from that and, and then we get the Gustav that we all love and know. Um, and, and that would make it, you know, some incredible racing. Um, but if Gustav is getting a PTO contract, he's, he's getting one of the discretionary contracts because he's not ranked in the top 16. So, Speaking of people like that, if Martin Van Riel happens to not go to the Olympics this year and decides to race a full year of PTO racing... You think he's a threat to Jason West? Uh, yes. I mean, I think again, he's he's had some injury issues over the last year or two, um, but uh, again, he's another one that adds a lot of spice um, to to the races. And and that's no disrespect to you know I'm not being disrespectful of of other names in that ranking. You know, they're all incredibly talented world-class athletes but just on the day if you ask me you know to pick a name that's going to blow the race up I, um 
you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that Jason's probably spent a big chunk of the winter working on his swim. So um, if he's reaped the rewards of that, then, you know, we're in for some fun racing. Yeah, I'm with you. He's going to be hard to beat. Um, and, and the two other big races of the year, the Ironman 70.3 World Championships, if we do have everyone racing, you know, Gustav, Christian, Hayden, Martin, Jason, Magnus, Laidlow, etc. Alistair Brownlee, maybe Javier Gomez, and then everyone else uh, in in the men's field. Who do you think's the favourite to win that? Who do you think will win? I mean, I think home field advantage. I think Hayden will be the man to beat, depending on how much the Olympics takes out of him. You know, there's some athletes that they, you know, they're building towards the Olympics. They bring their A game to the Olympics and then post-Olympics that, you know, it takes a long time for them to decompress. Um, depending on how that goes, uh, um, you're putting me on the spot. I, I think, you know, he'll be the man to beat. Um, and the person that, you know, he might be battling against is... Um, you know, one of the names that we've already talked about. And then, of course, the big one, uh, which we've already discussed a little bit, but who do you think is going to win uh, the Men's Ironman World Championships at Kona this year? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess if I looked at it in a very calculating way, um, I would say that it's a three-horse race. Um, I think it's a... Um, and this is assuming that one of these individuals actually does Kona. Um, but I think it's it's between Gustav, Magnus, and Patrick Lang. No Sam Laidler? No. Wow. Gustav, Patrick, or Magnus, but no Sam Laidler, even though he's came second and first at the last two Ironman World Championships. Yeah, that's my... That is <laughs> that's my prediction. That is actually that's that's shocked me a little bit. Uh, yeah, wow. Whew. If Sam Lay though doesn't come in the top three, I'll be shocked. But you know, I'll I'll come back to this and go, wow, that was a that was a genius prediction. Um, <laughs> awesome, mate. That's that's pretty much everyone everything I wanted to talk about. I want to. There's so many other things I, I want to talk to you about. Like we haven't even touched on something else that all your athletes tell me about, which is that you are someone who uses weights a lot and sometimes uses them in a, in a little bit of a weird way. But we'll save that for the next time we chat because that's something that I want to dive into in a lot more. Uh, like uh, in a, in a, in, it's sort of another episode we do later on in the year where maybe we go into a bit of a deep dive on on all things training and and really nerd out on it. And we've already taken up probably nearly two hours, so. Definitely save that from another day. Uh, mate, I could talk no to you all, all day about triathlon. I think uh, people have slowly learned about you, like you said, um, you know, with Corey and then with, with with Lionel. But by now, you've you've certainly locked yourself in as one of the the like premier coaches in long course triathlon. Definitely someone who I think is regarded as, as one of the top four or five uh, coaches in, in long course triathlon. So it's a pleasure to talk to you, mate. Um, appreciate and, uh, it appreciate yeah good luck with the year ahead hopefully ash has a big one Thank hopefully you. uh some of those lesser known athletes you have like the chase packs very own andy hurstfold turner uh you know progress a little bit for you and we're talking about uh some more of your athletes uh you know throughout the year that's the plan awesome mate have a have a good rest of your day and uh yeah appreciate your time no problem at all take care